0: So if you think about, you know, how do we make decisions in the world, right? How do we decide what movie we're going to see? How do we make decisions on who we're going to vote for? All that sort of thing. There's lots of information we take in, but a lot of research has shown, both in politics and outside of politics, that the most influential people in our lives are the friends and family and our relationships. Hello,
1: this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Mike Fole, executive director at Organizing Empowerment Project, a nonprofit that helps Organizations promote relational organizing by providing free software tools, funding, and training. I wanted to catch up with Mike to see how he was doing in the couple of years since we last talked. For those interested in relational organizing for progressives, you should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Mike Foll of Organizing Empowerment Project. Hi, Mike. Welcome back to the podcast. Would you mind reintroducing yourself quickly?
0: Absolutely. And thanks for having me back. Yeah. So I'm Mike Full. I am executive director at Empower Project. We're a nonprofit that specializes in relational organizing and trying to leverage the power of relational organizing to enact change.
1: We talked pretty extensively back in 2021. So that's recent, but a lot of political time ago, So I commend people who might just be getting to know you to listen to that maybe first, but I wanted to catch up with you and see what's been happening at Organizing Empowerment Project since we talked.
0: A lot has certainly happened over the last couple of years here. It has been quite the whirlwind. So we've continued to to push relational organizing and it might be a helpful refresher for those who don't wanna uh, do the homework of (laughs) listening to the last episode. So we do relational organizing, which is basically getting people to talk to their friends and family about important issues, about registering to vote, about who to vote for in the election, whatever it may be, but leveraging the power of personal relationships to enact change. It's kind of what we're all about. Since we last spoke, we have used relational organizing in a bunch of new contexts. So, we did a bunch of work around trying to use relational organizing to get COVID vaccine access for people. So, for those who remember in the early days of, of the vaccine rollout, it was obviously life saving and important. But in a lot of communities, that meant having to figure out how to go onto a website and help your grandma register to show up at some place at some time to get vaccinated. We had great success in working on that program in several states, especially Wisconsin and Oregon, being able to help people get get access to vaccines, as well as answer complicated questions about getting vaccinated. Since then, we obviously did a lot of work around the election in 2022 and in 2023, doing a lot more kind of direct organizing and learning and, and perfecting how this works. And we've really kind of seen over the last couple of years this, this tactic and technique that seemed to be so fruitful a couple of years back at the small scale, really has blossomed. And we have gotten kind of answered some of the scale questions have gotten super big in some of these races, being able to have a huge impact. And we really see this as a new and useful way that all campaigns and organizations can communicate with their voters, along with every other tactic that they're already using.
1: One of the almost standalone races that was recent and in your neck of the woods was that Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. Were
0: you involved in that? I am based in Wisconsin. We have staff and do work all across the country, but I am based in Wisconsin, and and we were very pleased to be part of that Supreme Court race. So for those of you who remember, the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court's balance was on the line, and thankfully, uh, Judge Janet was able to win there and and give liberals control of the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin after a very long time. And we ended up running a a massive paid relational program, big program through our PAC And so we were able to have 530,000 relational conversations in about six weeks in a state where obviously everything was on the line. So we were so pleased to be a part of that. I mean, we'll get so big and have so many conversations working with so many coalition partners in the process. We learned quite a bit. We were able to kind of double in size from a similar program that we ran in the Nevada Senate and governor race back in fall of 2022, where we had 262,000 relational conversations. So the the last time we spoke and had conversations about what relational was and how it could be impactful is kind of in the context of this seems to be working and how do we how do we get it to scale? How do we get more groups doing it? And I think we find kind of crossed that barrier here and now it's fully mature and, and cooking.
1: I want to dig into that Wisconsin race a little bit more just to enhance my understanding of what does that mean? And is half a million relational conversations a lot or a little? I mean, it's a big number, but what does that translate to? Can we estimate in terms of an actual person voting or voting differently or being more involved? So can you sort of go into some of the the details about what does it take to stand up a program like that? who's getting paid for doing what, and just flesh out the details of that so that I and other people can understand it better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about, you know, how do we make decisions in the world, right? How do we decide what movie we're going to see? How do we make decisions on who we're going to vote for? All that sort of thing. There's lots of information we take in, but a lot of research has shown, both in politics and outside of politics, that the most influential people in our lives are the friends and family and our relationships. So if you think about what type of movie are you going to go see? You know, I might see a hundred TV ads about how great a certain movie is, but if your best friend goes to see it and says it's horrible, you're probably not gonna go see it, right? Same thing goes true in politics. There's lots of ads and, and TV and mail and radio and all that, and that's important and useful. But a lot of times when there's complicated elections, people can make decisions based on who their friends and family and social circles are encouraging them to vote for. The scientific term for this is homophily. Birds of a feather flock together. You you tend to kind of be friends with and and act with your cohort in in your community. And so we kind of see that in certainly big elections like presidential elections, but also state elections like in Wisconsin, the, the state Supreme Court seat is elected. And so part of the conversation that you need to have with your friends and family is what the heck is a state Supreme Court candidate? What do they do? How does that affect your life? And so a lot of it is, is getting as many community members as possible to talk to their friends and family about the election, why it matters in Wisconsin. The easy example of abortion and women's rights are on the line, access to health care, gay marriage, all of these important civil justice issues are on the line. And so being able to explain how something that is obscure to normal people like why are we electing judges and trying to explain that complicated issue to friends and family who tend not to be involved in politics can make a difference we've done a bunch of research now over the years going back to 2016 showing that the impact you know it can have a couple percentage points on impact a you know, one to three percent impact on turnout when running this type of program which can be um, pretty big and dramatic and, and powerful the important thing is being able to basically empower people in the community to have these conversations with their friends and family, as opposed to maybe a, you know working off a, a voter list to go knock on doors of people you don't know. And that's important in doing that, too. But really what we see is this can be so impactful, leveraging first the people in your life about why an election matters to you.
1: How do you get going on that? You know, there's a critical election coming up for the state. What are the meetings? Who is involved how do you make a program like that actually get off the ground?
0: You're asking the exact question as to why our, our nonprofit was formed so many years ago, because we've been doing so much research and learning and best practices and iterations on this to figure out exactly that question. There's a bunch of different ways to do this type of organizing. and We really tried to hone in on what works and what didn't and continuing to learn. That's why we were able to double in size from our Nevada program to our Wisconsin program is because we just got more efficient and better and we're able to implement those best practices what this looks like to implement is basically you can you know have an organization like our organization gets field organizers, just like anybody else, running a field program, and they recruit members of the community to start building lists of their friends and family and have multiple conversations throughout the cycle. We really encourage people to, as they have conversations with their friends and family, to reach out how they normally would. So maybe you call your mom, you text message your best friend, you Facebook message your aunt, whatever it is, but use your existing communication channels and have conversations. Now, when I say have conversations, that doesn't mean memorize six bullet points and shout them at somebody until they agree with you. right? Like that, unsurprisingly, research shows that it's not effective. So when we really talk about this, it's a matter of having just real conversations about what does this election matter to you? Why is it important? And then even more importantly, listen to the person you're talking to about, you know, what issues matter to them? Why do they care? Why do they think the way they do? I think we'll find in our normal day-to-day lives most people aren't going to listen to a podcast about politics. Despite being a very good podcast about politics, normal people don't think about politics on a day-to-day level. And so being able to explain why something matters to you People care for you, they're they're interested in what you have to say and, and it can make a difference in the way they behave. Maybe you'll get somebody to register to vote and vote for the first time because you've kind of explained why this whole political thing matters. Maybe you can get people to switch the way they vote or care about different issues in a way that they, they don't. And it really is a long term journey you can go on with friends and family to have these conversations. Again, respectfully and listening and that can build up over time to be able to change behavior. It's not something that changes overnight, but being able to have conversations over you know, a couple months in the Supreme Court race, we, we ended up running the program over about a, a month and a half. Just, hey, have conversations with your friends. Here's the latest thing that is in the news about this the Supreme Court race, that this new late breaking thing came out. Here's information about that all the way down to here's how to register a vote. Here's how to find your polling place and helping your friends and family do that.
1: So how does it start? It seems like you must have a, an initial list of people that you've worked with before. Do you start with that, a list like that? How does the Empower app that I know you have fit into that? Do you start with that in that app and do you share with these initial people that technology or are you working outside of it to some degree?
0: Yeah, and it really is delves into details of how to make this work or not work. So we kind of talk about moving people through the funnel is the best way to think about this. So the first phase is certainly recruitment. There's a bunch of different ways to recruit people into relational programs. We work with hundreds of nonprofit organizations supporting their relational work. So they have existing activists and members that they can certainly start with there. But there's also the cold outreach you can do. You can run you know digital ads. You can make cold calls through the voter file or through a third-party data list or whatever it is to reach out to as many people in the community as possible and try and draw them in and find the folks who are interested in participating. Once you get people into the system, into your workflow, then it's a matter of... So, So
1: like in the case of the Wisconsin one, how many people did you get in in the first like week or something approximately? I assume it's sort of like then each of them is reaching out. And so the list grows. How did it start? Like, what's the sequence look like?
0: So in the Wisconsin program, we were able to basically do all of the ways all at once. Thankfully, we had the resources to be able to to do a bunch of things. So we partnered with um, a bunch of great organizations that we could partner with them on, you know, list sharing and data. They would
1: load the software with their 300 people.
0: Yeah. So in Wisconsin, through our PAC, we ran this directly. So this was kind of our organizers doing this this outreach. We also are a nonprofit that also supports a bunch of community groups doing this as well. So in this particular case, it was a matter of working with a bunch of community groups and having them help direct their folks kind of into our program so our organizers could help manage them. So we structure that in some of the key races across the country every year, which I can talk about here in a second, kind of where we direct organize on that. And then in other cases, we can support community groups to do that. So we worked with, you know, a bunch of unions like ASME and AFT and Carpenters Union and community groups like NextGen and things like that, and and kind of working with them on their list. And then we also directly did digital ads to draw people into the program. And we did uh, cold calls out to third-party data vendor lists. I mean, we made probably a million and a half Outreach attempts to try and to bring people into the program
1: so one of the things that has been explained to me before by people in relational organizing that made sense to me is that there's a real potential to have the networks that you build in one election be useful in the subsequent election so in this case, we're talking recently were you able to draw on previous efforts in the state and you know, relationships that were encapsulated in in the data in your app and kind of go forward from there? Or do you have to start from fresh or how does it look?
0: Yeah. So in Wisconsin, we are fortunate to have been working for many years going all the way back actually to the uh, Wisconsin 2011 recalls. So we're able to certainly start with networks of folks that we've already been working with now for several years and and several cycles. So yes, that's absolutely part of it. And we see relational organizing as, as exactly that. You can build up networks and kind of have that infrastructure within organizations to be able to utilize year after year, as well as month after month. I mean, obviously the thing that gets attention is it's election time, remind people to vote. But a lot of the organizations we work with, it's using it for, you know, call your legislator about Senate Bill 1234 or, you know, come attend this upcoming hearing or become dues paying member, things like that. And being able to have folks utilize their networks year round is helpful. And then to your other point about growing and scaling, that's absolutely part of it is once you get people in the program that are making lists and having conversations with friends and family, they can help eventually recruit other people into the program. We really did see exponential growth doing that sort of thing. So we started with you know a couple hundred people in the first week to by the end in Wisconsin, we had 7,700 people in our, in our relational program that built a network of about 300,000 names they were talking to and and had 530,000 relational conversations. So we were able to kind of grow quickly by doing that type of thing.
1: It seems strange to me that if you had used it before and run campaigns that got to scale, why would you have to only have a few hundred to start with?
0: You have to kind of reach back out to people and say, hey, this is happening again. Are you in?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of like re-upping people who have done it before. Like they've used this app before. They've had these contacts before. It's like, go do again what you did before, but the election is different. The names are different. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's a mix of that. And then also a good chunk of folks are, are, are new people because that's the whole point of this is reaching out and and pe- people who weren't engaged before bringing in. So it's a mix of kind of old folks and new folks. We really, especially in Wisconsin, tried to to be honest to, to lean into as many new folks as possible. You know, we already had kind of the old folks cooking and, and having those conversations. The majority of the folks we brought in uh, were actually new, intentionally, because we were trying to expand the electorate and have conversations on campus and and in communities of color and transient populations and rural voters and folks who tend uh, maybe not to be as involved in other political context. So yes, having that network can be so helpful, but it doesn't change the fact you also have to do that organizing. As you mentioned, we have a a free, so we're a nonprofit, we have a free tool that we provide, that we use, and we also provide to any progressive organizations for free. It's called Empower, to track and manage this work, and it wraps around the voter file and all that sort of thing. And so, yes, we can kind of track folks that we're working with and how things have been going, but we really say that it's, it's 20% technology, 80% field to run this type of, of relational organizing program. As much as I wish it was download an app, click a button, automatically win. That isn't the case, it takes actual organizing. And so having those organizers do outreach, kind of re-engaging people who maybe haven't been engaged can be important and then growing over time.
1: If there were 300,000 people, just taking this example, to illustrate 300,000 plus people who you reached out to and did you say that something like 1 to 3% lift sort of in the turnout and so on with respect to that group of people we're talking about maybe 3,000 more votes because of those contacts or 3,000 to 9,000 how would i think about like the impact of having one and a half relational conversations or two with a subset of the state population that size.
0: We're still waiting for the voter file data to come back for analysis. So I, I don't know the specific uh, impact on Wisconsin and, and what this ends up looking like. You know, overall, in previous experiences that we've we've done, previous experiments have been kind of showing that range of a couple percentage points. Potentially, these types of programs can absolutely be generating, you know, thousands of votes and engaging people. We've seen this very effective over time, and, and that's why we we work so hard as an organization to try and promote relational organizing so, so organizations and campaigns can use this as a useful tactic certainly
1: how many people voted in that and what was the margin in that election
0: the Wisconsin Supreme Court race really exploded at the end the liberal justice ended up winning by 11 points which is for those of you who know Wisconsin politics is very very unusual usually it's a candidate you know wins by half a percent you know it's every elections either won or lost by 20,000 votes in Wisconsin so it ended up being uh, very lopsided which was rare and Boy, I hope that was a sign for for things to come. But I think it will continue to be a very close state in the future. But we were certainly proud to be a part of that win. But there was also many, many groups doing a lot of great works in the state. Like I, I can't take credit for <laughs> for that as much as as it might be fun to do. It was it was a bunch of groups working all in the same direction to be able to get a win that big. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, your organization has built training and technology and programs and has a pack There's a lot going on there to run relational campaigns. When we first had a conversation about this, you talked about what it took to raise money for your nonprofit, what it took to find good people to write the software and rewrite the software. What has been sort of the path for the nonprofit to get it to the point where you can get involved in these big races? with this tech and other people running the programs and doing the trainings and so on.
0: Yeah, it has been a very long journey here over the last—I mean, ten years at this point, right? Um, It starts with a lot of luck, to be honest, to be able to to start a nonprofit and be able to be successful in that front, uh, and be able to scale up as we have. So certainly a lot of luck, and you know, a lot of that luck comes with being able to to bring in great people along the way that can help support us and funders that are willing to to take some risks early on before you have the research showing that.
1: It sounds like you kind of made your own luck there, (laughs) took advantage of some good fortune, but. A lot of work.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, we, we tried to do all of the work we could to be ready to capture the luck when it comes along. How about that? We started this journey basically with some organizations and funders that seemed to say like, Hey, this seems to be working. What do we need to do to make it better? So we kind of founded this nonprofit to try and address whatever barriers we could see that was preventing groups from doing this type of organizing. And we kind of identified three things. One was the technology and it wasn't a great way to track and manage this work. As you mentioned, uh, we had some initial technology. We, had, we brought in some amazing uh, engineers and folks to help us rebuild and, and improve, and we've been constantly iterating on that. And we give it away for free to, to nonprofits and make it incredibly affordable for candidates as well. So um, over the years, we've been able to support thousands of organizations at this point running this, uh, over the last decade. And the other thing that we saw uh, lacking in the space was training. And so we got, we brought in some great training teams, did a whole bunch of research to constantly iterate and learn best practices. And what we do is we provide free coaching to any organization that wants to do this type of work and we can train the directors on how do you write plans to do this type of work, to, to train the organizers on how do they implement this and be successful. The other thing that we identified was lack of funding. And so we worked with funders to be able to provide grants to smaller community groups so they can hire a field staffer to start this work earlier in the cycle than they otherwise would have, and then can go and be successful. That worked. Um, at this point, we trained 82,000 people from over 1,000 organizations. Again, we ran these massive programs ourselves directly um, as well, because that was the last thing we saw last cycle was there were some states and some programs where the, where we really felt like to incubate relational long-term, we needed to come in and kind of directly fill some gaps ourselves and working with donor tables and community groups so we can kind of get things stood up and then pass along the capacity that we built to the local groups on the ground to be successful. The process of doing all of that has been, as I'm sure some some of your listeners may also be, running organizations, it it is tiring, it is difficult. There are many bumps in the road trying to, to navigate everything. Many times things don't work out and you have to quickly be able to evaluate what doesn't work, pivot, learn from it and move on all while trying to fundraise and close gaps and all that. It's hard.
1: What have been the biggest challenges of late since we last talked? Like, is it recruitment and retention of good people? Is it finding money? Is it tech snafus? What's been difficult?
0: Well, as an executive director, all I ever do is deal, deal with the fires, right? Everybody else gets to do the fun part. As soon as some part of the organization or some issue comes up, I get to figure out how to, to fix it and then move on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, we've faced a lot of challenges. I mean, so this entire structure of our program initially was doing relational organizing in person. It, this whole thing started with, hey, get a bunch of people into a, a church basement or community hall or whatever, build lists on paper and pencil, and, and let's have conversations and then COVID hit and suddenly organizing in person wasn't uh, wasn't an option. And we were able to, thankfully, very quickly pivot to make this a way to do, you know, over Zoom and, and virtually and things like that. It's a fortunate thing is, it turns out that ended up being even more efficient and faster and all that to be able to, to do. And, and obviously many organizations dealt with COVID. The other obstacles we've had to try and figure out how to overcome has been funding is always an issue for every organization. And uh, trying to figure out how to best allocate, all right, what do we need to be doing to to uh, fund community groups? Uh, what do we need to do to try and help uh, staff up? There's always a increase in demand as we've been so successful uh, in trying to figure out how to balance the demand from the community groups and, and, capacity issues of what states we need to be trying to run program in with the resources available. So but we've been able, thankfully, to to stay on top of things and I think be able to be in a stable position thanks to some great funders and a whole bunch of groups and, and staff that have been really supportive. So we've been able to navigate the challenges here and be able to find some success for sure.
1: There are multiple different ways that a campaign or organization could engage with relational organizing right now there are consultants out there including consultants who have their own tools that they've built there's you folks there are software companies that have built relational organizing tools that are kind of off the shelf and you have to spin up your own staff to manage them and make them useful how would you compare for someone who is trying to make a decision about which way to go of those different options because you can't handle all the relational organizing that ought to take place for our side across the country. What, what are the pluses and minuses in your mind of different ways to go?
0: Well, I mean, I would say we're we're trying to handle it all, so <laughs> we're trying to do what we can and and have have been pushing as much as we can. the first step is again if if anybody's listening here and is uh, either you know runs an organization or involved in an organization or even volunteers for an organization, if you're not adding relational organizing to your toolkit of different programs you're running like make that call today, reach out to somebody and start adding it. Absolutely. As you mentioned, there's different structures out there, right? So there are consultants that you can hire to run and a your program. There's different software tools and things that you can purchase at this point now to, to try and track and manage your programs. The way we've kind of positioned ourselves in the space is we're the nonprofit doing this type of thing. So we can give everything away for free, you know, it has its pros and cons like anything else. Uh, it, the con is I don't get to buy a yacht, I suppose. I don't think anyone in the relational game is buying yachts, but... This is true. This is very true. <laughs> Political tech is very niche, I'll tell you that. The way we go about our business here is, is we judge our success on our wins and losses. We're not trying to judge things on profits or big splashy things. We're really trying to figure out, are we doing what it takes to be winning in given areas? And that's caused us to have to throw things out and restart several times, both on the technology side, on the training side. It's allowed us to be more flexible. And so I would say, you know, groups that are interested in in long-term organizing and and long-term impact, um, we would love to be chatting with them. We're maybe not always the best fit for somebody who wants to spin up something two weeks before election day and and see what happens. We really want to try and be building long-term infrastructure. Because we feel like that's what it's going to take to win. And so that's why we structured our organization as a nonprofit so that there's really no excuse at this point for why groups aren't doing relational. Like we will hold your hand throughout the entire way. Let's let's get it done.
1: If you are trying to get relational organizing in place, it is a different sort of feel if you are a consultant who's going to get paid to do it and maybe get paid for the software versus the way you're doing it. One of the things that people worry about the nonprofit model sometimes is that funders who might be initially enthusiastic and feel that they got something going in place might lose interest and not continue to help you scale and grow. If you're in a for-profit model, if you have the demand, you're going to have more people paying and you're going to be able to have more money to spend kind of proportionate to the number of people that adopt it how do you kind of regulate the flow of money in that's needed as you have had a lot of demand? And when you're giving something away for free, it's in a lot of cases easier to have someone pick that up, I I suspect.
0: Yeah, it's actually a great question. I think a larger esoteric question for the movement. going to get on my soapbox here for a second. I think that when it comes to political tech, nonprofit model is the only viable option. There are a handful of profitable political tech things out there. But I think as you know, you've you've had a lot of conversations with people on the podcast over the years. Most of them come and go because the cycle is so boom and bust. It is very hard, especially around field type political tech. It is very hard to raise the money you need to raise in a two or three month period through charging campaigns to then sustain you for the next two years until the next big paycheck can come in. There is some tech out there that can pull it off, and that's great. But in general, I think more often than not, that isn't a sustainable 10-year type plan. And and we've certainly seen that in the relational space. There's been quite a few tools that have come and gone since we've been here.
1: Or come and been absorbed into a bigger tool, right?
0: I'd say a mix of both. But yes, yeah, that that, like things kind of come and go. And and there's only so much for-profit political tech model, I think, can do. The other thing is what we've seen as a convergence, when you have to charge for your tool, you have to chase where the money is, which means you're really trying to chase the really big organizations that can afford to write massive checks. One of the things that I'm proud of and that that has been helpful in the way we've structured ourselves is we're able to support so many of these smaller groups as well that are incubating all of these great ideas and and learning and, and that tend to be ignored that the big national groups we work with then benefit from when we learn and 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 do the best practices with them so we work with big national groups like again ask me carpenters union next gen the the DLCC last cycle i mean there's a there's a bunch of big national groups we work with but we work with hundreds and hundreds of really small groups that that wouldn't be financially viable for us to support if we were trying to charge them a whole bunch of money to to try and stay alive. So I think that opens up just a whole different segment of the movement that we're able to support because of that. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, right? There is risks in any type of business model. I'm glad there's others out there that are able to make the other style work, and and that allows them to also have other flexibility. We're able to be pretty stable because of of the way we've structured ourselves and uh, feel good about the funding community we've been able to be engaged with that I think allows us to have more stability than most of the other things that are out there these days.
1: What kind of budget are you up to these days?
0: So we tend to run uh, seven to $10 million a cycle um, between our direct program and grants and, and all that type of stuff. And, you know, growing even more now, looking at what we can, can do next year. We're trying to build out on our, on our PAC side, being able to support being in more battleground states next year, having more staff on the ground and filling gaps. We really see our roles, like I keep saying, you know, we're trying to incubate relational programs. So when there's groups on the ground doing the work in certain areas, great, we will let them take a lead, give them everything they need. And then as we work with funders to identify if there's certain areas where there aren't groups that are a good fit, we can come in and fill those needs and, and kind of tie that all together to have a big impact. And so there's always fundraising to be done and always ways to do that, but it also allows us to iterate and innovate a lot more because we're directly doing this work ourselves. We're able to see what works what doesn't. Um, and the people are familiar in the, the tech world it's eat your own dog food is the is the phrase for that, right? Because we're able to to see see what breaks when we try and do things. We're able to fail very quickly because we're able to try things we wouldn't necessarily recommend a client to do because we don't know if it'll work or not. We could learn all that type of stuff and then throw it over to everybody else we're working with as we learn what works. And so that also helps with our long-term funding because we're able to innovate so quickly.
1: If I had to hazard a guess, I would imagine that it's still the case that the majority of candidates and groups don't have relational programs with you or with anybody else. Do you think that's right? Mm-hmm. If you were providing this service for free and it's valuable, what do you think is holding up adoption more broadly?
0: There's been an explosion over the last cycle certainly. I think it's it is growing. It's a mix, right? Of anytime there's sort of a a new technique or new innovation that rolls out there's some healthy skepticism as there should be of waiting for the proof being in the pudding and seeing what works and what doesn't. There's kind of a sense of that again, over the last 10 years we've been doing this, we we've gone from, hey, this thing doesn't work, don't bother to okay, it seems to work, but does it scale to all right, it scales. What's the actual cost of all this? How do we make this all work? So like I think we've seen that transition and a lot of more groups are hopping in. I'll also say like as much as I want every group doing this, it isn't necessarily the right fit for everybody to do it. It takes field staff, it takes, engaging in this way just like it does you know deciding we're going to run a door program or we're going to run a phone program which isn't the right fit for everybody and sometimes it's limited resources within organizations that they need to figure out how are they going to devote resources to this type of program versus the other tactics and programs that we're trying to run i think we've hit that tipping point over this last cycle where coming into 2024 the more groups than not will be running a relational program. And again, maybe there's different flavors and ways people want to try and do that. But I think we're at that point where more, more groups than not will be doing it. And it's our goal to try and make sure as many groups as possible are doing it the right way. What do you think
1: distinguishes a group or program that is going to be successful using relational organizing from one that isn't? Like, What are the characteristics of someone who's nailing it?
0: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting needle to thread to separate kind of successful groups and unsuccessful. So I think the first is being actually internally invested. One of the the first telling signs of a group being able to it being to fail is if like One person within the organization is like, "Oh, we should maybe try relational," and and everybody else doesn't believe in it, and it kind of gets sidelined. Those are not going to be successful. Whether that's a the director believes in it and the field staff don't, or vice versa. So, being able to have everybody kind of on board and saying, "All right, you know, even if it is a pilot, all right, we're going to treat this seriously and give it a couple months to see what happens," then you start to see success. It really isn't the type of thing that you want to just kind of be like, "Oh." I'll try it for a couple of days and see what happens. You're just not going to be successful. The other is investment. Again, you know, the groups that have field staff to be able to throw at a problem, you're going to scale up over time and be more successful. And then being willing to to innovate and do the work long term. I mean, that's really what it is, is, is uh, relational organizing can take time to scale up and, and get big. But um, if you spend the time and energy to do it, it could be really effective and have long term impact. What are you involved in currently? Yeah, so we have a bunch of programs uh, that will be coming up here in the fall. Mississippi governor's race. We're looking at Kentucky and Pens- Pennsylvania Supreme Court race, uh, Virginia legislative races, looking at some other projects. Uh, what does
1: looking at mean in those cases?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're working with funders in some areas to figure out, like, what is, what is the scale of the program of kind of where things are going to be? And- so like
1: an independent program that would be through your pack or working with the campaigns in those states directly?
0: It depends. Yep. So in some cases we can work with the candidates and things directly and, and kind of support them. And then in other cases, it's we're running things through our pack or we're supporting community groups on the ground. I think we're working with several dozen organizations in those states that you mentioned already to be spinning up their programs and be supporting them, kind of supporting the work that they're doing. And then we're having conversations with our funders to figure out exactly how much and how big in some of those different states you mentioned we want to run program in.
1: What about 2024? It seems like that election may matter. Yes. Presidentially and below. What do you think is coming there? Maybe more broadly in, in relational organizing, as well as what your own organization will be up to?
0: Starting with our organization, our our goal is to run. You know, we ran a massive program in Nevada. We run a massive program in Wisconsin. Our goal now is to be sure that we're running massive, similarly sized, if not bigger, massive programs um, in at least all of battleground states here next cycle. And we're working with a bunch of funders to to get that all figured out and and. And be successful on that, because as, as as you said, this is this is going to be an important one. Part of our 2024 plan is learning as much as we can still uh, between now and then. So, seeing certainly elections this fall and next spring is opportunities to do that and grow and build up that network that we can then engage next fall. Again, even though we've been doing this for ten years, there's so much more we've been able to learn here, even over the last couple of years as we continue to iterate. The window is closing on how much more we can learn before it really counts. So, there's a lot of time and energy that we're spending getting ready for that, making sure we can be in those battleground states. And in addition to that, with all the groups we're supporting, again, we're, we'll be training tens of thousands of people next year and being ready to support all that and all the community groups that we'll be working with there as the movement as a whole. I am hopeful at this point that most campaigns on the candidate side to nonprofits, to everything, will see relational organizing as indispensable in the same way that you know, it would be unthinkable to run a, a campaign without doing a mail program or without doing digital ads or things like that. I think we'll see the same thing of, of, you know, of course, you'll need to include a relational program as well. So trying to make sure that at least the community as a whole has all the best practices that we're learning, even if they end up deciding we're not the best fit for their needs, great. Hopefully they can at least learn from us and all the best practices if they end up doing something in-house or using a paid consultant or, or building something on their own or whatever it is to do it with the best practices in mind.
1: If I remember your history, you had a bunch of years working with America Votes. Do I remember that right?
0: Yeah, yep. I worked at America Votes as political director in Wisconsin, actually, for for many years.
1: And a lot of what America Votes has to do with is helping groups coordinate so they're not overlapping each other in field programs, right? So that you're not knocking the same door with three different canvassers in the same day with the same message. Is that a problem with relational organizing? Might you have overlapping programs how do you coordinate yourself into the ecosystem and make sure that you're where you needed to be and not where you're not?
0: Yeah, great, great question. Yeah, so first of all, America Votes plays such a critical role to the progressive infrastructure. Their claim to fame is certainly trying to make sure field programs are smart and, and overlap in, in smart ways. They obviously do quite a bit more beyond that as well of providing infra- infrastructure around data and targeting and and coordinating all of the different legal ways to, to make sure the right groups are talking to each other the right ways. So we certainly see relational organizing as being an important part of those conversations as well. We see the need to, to make sure that all the plans within the groups you work with, as well as the direct work we do ourselves, make sense within the overall movement's goals. When you run a relational program, it's kind of interesting. So, it's probably the best way to think of it is like it's kind of like a traditional door program or additional phone program, but also a little bit of a digital program, and a little bit of maybe paid communication program type thing, where there's a mix of clear structure and also just to be blunt, a little bit of chaos, right? So you can layer our Empower app on the tech side, you know, connects to the van, connects to the voter file. and So you can, you know, track and manage how things match with the various targets you're trying to hit within an organization. So we can do that. But then also with relational, you're able to track and manage transient populations that tend not to be in the voter file. Communities of color, youth, folks who tend not to be in the voter file that wouldn't be part of coalition's door program or plan and things like that. And so there's a kind of a way to bridge that gap. And depending on how you structure your program and your strategic goals within your relational program, you can lean into one universe more than the other and, you know, make sure that you're doing things the smart way. I don't think I would recommend as a best practice to say like, oh, this person's door already got knocked, so we don't need to talk to them relationally or vice versa, right? Knowing that a person has been relationally talked to and talked to on the phone and talked to on the door. I think all of that is certainly important. And having data be able to communicate and feed back and forth can be so critical and allows groups like America Vote to be able to help report out to funders and report out to the community, how things are going, what's working, what's not, all that sort of thing. Relational is kind of that that weird space where you can highly track stuff that we already know through campaigns, like stuff off the voter file, but then also all of the stuff that you don't. I like to use the example of, you know, if somebody just moved yesterday, the voter file, no third party data vendor knows their new address, knows their new phone number, but their mom does, their best friend does. And so if you're running a relational program, you can still track and, and manage how do we talk to this person and, and what are they saying about things. And so layering all that can then help feedback into later on making more intelligent decisions as a, as a campaign or as a movement.
1: There's certainly subsets of the population that you would want to reach out differently to through different networks than others. Does that happen automatically through a relational program, or do you have to be attentive to racial differences and economic differences and language differences explicitly?
0: A good relational program can really hit into any community. It's it's kind of the difference between the, the tactic and the strategy. So I think the tactic can be wielded in any ways. And the question is just the strategy of what communities are you trying to, to reach into and, and leverage, you know, your relationships with trusted messengers within those communities. That big word i mentioned earlier, homophily, which is birds of a feather flock together. Basically, as you're recruiting, we call them mobilizers, the people who are are building the list of their friends and family, you know, whatever community you're spending your energy growing those people to join the program, their networks are likely to look like them. So if your goal is to talk to the immigrant community, try and recruit leaders from the immigrant community and have conversations with them. And we've seen groups be very successful having you know folks have conversations with, with different communities like that. And then having that outreach and, and empowering people to do that. I think that's why we see in the research that some of the most impactful groups that we've worked with doing relational organizing have been groups doing work in youth and BIPOC communities and people that tend not to be in the voter file, because these are communities that tend not to be directly contacted any other way. They're not getting a direct mail piece addressed to them. They're not getting phone calls direct to them. And this is kind of the first time they're having a direct conversation with them. And you can layer that on the complete opposite, right, of people who maybe are being talked to 50 other different ways from 50 other campaigns, all pulling them different directions and having your mom or your best friend pull you aside and say, hey, here's what the truth is. Here's what you need to know can be so impactful that way as well.
1: One of the hazards in politics is that your contact or your ad or whatever political message you send out there could actually have the effect of getting your opponent's Out the voters for the other side. It's just inevitable. Do you find a problem with that in relational, where some subset of your network starts working for the other side? Have you run across that at all, or do you worry about it?
0: So actually, our program in Wisconsin that we ran, we got big enough to be relevant enough to the bad guys, where they attacked us pretty heavily on right-wing radio for a long time. And we were even uh, attacked briefly on the Tucker Carlson show right before he got fired. So I'll, I'm going to take credit for that.
1: So there's one them, them seeing it and not liking it, but you could have a volunteer who is recruited to talk to all their friends. And instead of saying vote for Judge Janet, they say vote for the Republican Supreme Court justice. And then they use the technology and, and their network against us.
0: Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's what I'm saying. So, because the bad guys were attacking us, they actually were encouraging their listeners and supporters to try and infiltrate our program and disrupt. So we had many layers. Thankfully, because we've been doing this for so long, we were able to integrate many layers of kind of quality control to catch that happening and and kick people out and not have them be able to detrimentally impact our program. I also will say, like at the end of the day, whether a Bad guys, I guess, in a program, you know, whether they're in our Empower app or not, if they're going to talk to their friends and family and say vote for Donald Trump, you know, at least now, now we can catch it and kick and them out of the program. I mean, they're, they're going to do that anyway.
1: I assume. Yes. Maybe it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. So I think there's, there's a little bit of a level of that. We'd implement a bunch of quality control to try and, and catch that and, and kick people out. And at the end of the day, that's no different than any other campaign where as long as you're doing enough good work, your side is overpowering whatever bad guys are trying to do and you can impact the election and, and make a difference.
1: What should I have asked you about what you're up to that I failed to?
0: <laughs> yeah. I touched on it a little bit but just just to really dig in a little bit more, you know, there's a lot of folks that are focusing in the movement here since we last spoke actually around equity and inclusion and trying to figure out what structural changes maybe within the progressive movement we need to do to make sure we're lifting up different voices and different communities that tend to be left out. I really do see relational organizing as being an important part of that process, because I think, again, some of these communities where they're organizing, where there aren't folks that are on the voter file as frequently can tend to be a at a disadvantage when talking to funders or talking to groups because it's a lot harder to say, you know, hey, we checked off these people in the voter file that we talked to, right? That's easy to do in suburban white in America. It's difficult to do in some of the more racially oppressed zip codes in this country. And so it becomes hard for these organizations to feel like they're on equal footing when talking to funders or talking in the press or things like that. They have to, in some ways, kind of sidestep how we evaluate program as a progressive community because they're being discounted because things aren't initially in the voter file. So So we've really tried to be working with a lot of these groups on the ground. And again, this also goes back to your question about being a nonprofit, is we're able to work with all these groups that are also habitually underfunded and get them doing relational organizing, which they're already trying to do anyways, but now there's some technology and, and ways to track it, which then they can go back to the funding community and say, look, we've been saying for years that we have a reach into these communities. When we say community organizing, look at us. We're talking to tens of thousands of people that aren't on the voter file, but we can track what they're doing using relational And we've really seen that successful with many of them to be able to try and help make the case as to why they should be funded, as well as properly gauge the impact that they're actually having in these communities. So I think just overall, as as the progressive movement is evaluating how do we address structural issues and equity issues, I think this is one of the many, many, many things that that could, could be done that need to be done to try and address that. Well,
1: I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this right now. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, thank you so much, and good luck to us all next year. Definitely.
1: That was Mike Full. Mike is at OrganizingEmpowermentProject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.